open to Psalm 61. Uh, Psalm 61 is a psalm written by David, king of Israel. Um, at least 75 of the psalms, at least 75 out of the 150 psalms that we have in our Bible, we know were written by uh, King David. The rest were written by a handful of other people, or they were uh, anonymous, and we're not sure who wrote them. So this one was written by King David. Um, and we don't know the specific context in which uh, Psalm 61 was written. Um, a lot of psalms tell us uh, specifically when they were written and what was going on in the life of the psalmist when they were written. Most don't. Most just uh, at best tell us who wrote them, uh, maybe kind of what the, what the tune is that they're written to or something like that. But um, So Psalm 61 doesn't give us any uh, you know, specific, explicit details about uh, when and why it was written. But we can try to figure it out by piecing together clues from what we read in the, the psalm itself. And so we'll see as we read through it. We know that it was written um, at a time when the psalmist was in distress, when he was crying out to the Lord, uh, a time when he was, um, or at least felt that he was far away uh, from God and, and was in particular dire need of God's uh, grace. And so um, some, some uh, scholars, some theologians will um, look, look at, uh, we'll, we'll look at this actually at verse uh, 2 that we'll get to in a minute, where it says, from the ends of the earth, and they'll conclude, well, this psalm must have been written during the exile, um, because that's the only way that, that the psalmist would write uh, language like, like I'm calling out to God from the ends of the, of the earth. Um, the catch is uh, that uh, that view is difficult to hold because David died well before the exile, right? Centuries before the exile, David uh, had already died. And so uh, those that would say this was written during the exile would say, well, it wasn't uh, written by David. It was... Um, maybe attributed to David even though he didn't write it, or um, they'll say, well, the, the reason why we think it was written by David is because of the, the title at the top of the psalm, right? It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. And they'll say, well, those uh, titles there are not really inspired, and so we don't need to really, um, you know, they don't really count. They weren't part of the original text. Now, um, it's true that... Um, chapter numbers and verse numbers were not part of the original text. They're not inspired. So you, you can take those with a grain of salt if you want. They were added uh, centuries later for convenience so that people could kind of follow along with where they read. But I think that you can make a pretty good case that the titles of the Psalms were included uh, in our earliest, they were included in the original text based on manuscript evidence based on some other verses in the Bible that seem to refer to them and kind of consider them to be authoritative with, with Scripture. So I personally would rule out the idea that Psalm 61 was written by someone other than David centuries after his life during the exile. And instead I would kind of hold that this psalm was written by David like the title of the psalm says, which means to kind of consider the circumstances for it. If we're not looking at the exile, we're looking at sometime in David's life when David felt far away from God, felt like he was at the ends of the earth. Um, and a pretty good candidate for when the psalm might have been written uh, would be uh, if you, you know, in Second Samuel chapters 15 to 18. There's uh, an episode there where David's son Absalom 
uh, conspires against him and tries to take his throne from him and tries to kill him, and David has to flee for his life. Um, and so it's certainly possible, if not quite likely, that that would be the kind of the, the circumstances that are happening in David's life when he wrote uh, this psalm. Now, uh, depending on who you read, they're going to refer to Psalm 61 uh, either as a uh, psalm of lament um, or a royal psalm or, or both. Psalms of lament are that. They're psalms of lament. They're, they're psalms where the, the psalmist is experiencing or, uh, or the nation of Israel is experiencing oppression, military defeat, natural disasters, and they're, they're asking for God's intervention. They're sad at what's happening, and they're asking for God to intervene and to, to save them. That's a psalm of lament. Psalm 61 is a good fit for that. And royal psalms um, are psalms that mention and deal with the king the king of Israel and his kind of role as the king of the nation and that pray specifically for the king. Psalm 61 is a good fit for that criteria as well. And so some uh, commentators actually classify it kind of as, as a, a, you know, a hybrid, as, as a royal lament psalm, which I think is probably an accurate description of Psalm 61. The structure of Psalm 61 is fairly straightforward. Uh, we're going to walk through it kind of verse by verse, but it starts with uh, two kind of couplets, kind of uh, two kind of dyads or, you know, uh, of that, that have a prayer and a recognition. So, so verses 1 to 2 is a prayer. Verse 3 is a recognition that kind of buttresses it. Uh, verse 4 is a prayer. And then verse 5 is a recognition that buttresses it. Uh, and then verses 6 through 7 uh, is another prayer specifically for the king of Israel. And then verse 8 is kind of this uh, concluding remark. It's a commitment to uh, worship God in response to all he is and all that he has, has done. So prayer, recognition, prayer, recognition, prayer for the king, and then response of, of worship is kind of the structure that we'll work through. So uh, I'll read it in its entirety, then I'll pray, and then we'll spend some time considering Psalm 61 together. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask your blessing on our time and your word this morning. We thank you that you have brought us safely through um, another year, leading us, guiding us, instructing us, sustaining us with your word. And we pray, Lord, as we uh, move into the new year, that you would continue to do so, that you would continue to uh, feed us with your word and, and lead us and guide us. And we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I realized halfway through when I was praying that I didn't read the passage first, which is what I normally do. So I'll read it now. It says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure 
to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God and and appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Okay. So Psalm 61 starts, like I said, two kind of uh, couplets. uh, The first of which uh, we're looking at on the screen here. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than, than I. So David is saying, um, God, I need you to he- hear me and listen to me. I am in a particular situation, a particular circumstance that is not necessarily conducive to you hearing my prayer, but I need you to, to hear me. I need you to, as I cry out to you, I need to know and be assured that my cries are being heard. They're not falling on deaf ears. They're not falling, you know, like a, like a tree falls on the, right? Like, I need to know that someone is there hearing me, listening to me, and responding to me, which is um, a prayer that you can only pray realistically and in good conscience to the God of the Bible. Uh, the, the, the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith is unique in that he is both infinite and personal. All right? So, so um, all, all other uh, religions are going to maybe have one or the other, um, but probably not both. Infinite meaning God is sovereign, He's transcendent, he's otherworldly, he's, he's different, he's qualitatively different from his creation. He's the creator and is therefore distinct from his creation. He is uh, omnipotent, he's all-powerful, able to do anything that he pleases. That's God's infiniteness. But he's also personal, which means that um, he's, he's also near to us. He's close to us. He's accessible. We can talk with him. We can have a relationship with him. We can communicate with him. We can know him, and he can know us. The God of the Bible is both infinite and personal, right? So some religions like Islam uh, believe in a God that is infinite but not personal. So their God is strong and powerful, but he's kind of distant, and he's not exactly involved in the affairs of human beings. He doesn't, you know, he never came into the world. In fact, it would be anathema, it would be damnable to say that, that God came into the world. And so therefore, I mean, you can pray to God, but, you know, you can't really pray to him in the sense of bringing your requests to him and expecting him to hear them or answer them or be, be affected by them in any, in any way because God's not personal. Some religions, like you know polytheism that was prevalent in the ancient world, Greece and Rome, their gods are personal. You can interact with them. They're here. They're, they're close. They're part of creation. They'll sneak around and pretend to be human beings and flirt with, you know, people or whatever. But they're not infinite. They're not sovereign. They're not all-powerful. So they're basically just um, regular human beings that are just kind of like, you know, super, superpower, you know, like, like, you know, with a cheat code or something. And so if your God is, is personal but not infinite, then you could pray to him, sure, by all means, but he's not really worth pr- praying to because he does not have the ability, the strength, the power. There's no guarantee that he is going to be able to do 
anything that he wants or answer your, your prayer. And so the God of the Bible is unique that he is infinite and personal. Right? There's nothing that he cannot do. There's no prayer that he cannot answer. There's no task that he could set out on that he would be unable to complete. And he is personal. So he hears us and he cares about us. And he, he desires to act on our behalf. And he desires to leverage his omnipotence and his sovereignty for our good. And so David knows that. He trusts in that. And he says, because of that, God, I, I am praying to you. And I, am, I want you to hear my cry and listen to my prayer. He says, I'm, I'm calling out to you from the, the ends of the earth when my, when my heart is faint. So again, I don't think this is to be taken uh, literally, um, that, that he'd been you know, scattered or kind of um, sent away from the nation of Israel, but, but rather that David feels particularly um, vulnerable and particularly far away from God and far away from people that love him. And he feels um, in, in, a, in a, you know, he's emotionally, spiritually, relationally um, e- exhausted. So he calls out and asks God to intervene. And the intervention that he's desiring is to, for God to lead me to the rock that is higher than, than I. And so in the ancient world, the way that you would kind of, you know, real, what's the... Uh, the, the thing with real estate is uh, location, 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 right? So um, the, the, higher, the higher the elevation, uh, that, that, was, that, was the, that was what you wanted in the ancient world, right? Cities like Jerusalem were built on top of mountains, on top of elevated uh, you know, places because you could you know, see your enemies coming from really far away. You could uh, defend against them when they arrived. You would kind of fight downhill and have gravity on your side. Lower terrain, valleys were more dangerous, right? You're surrounded by, you know, uh, you know, land on both sides. You're kind of isolated. There's no one, there's no witnesses. Robbers would hide out and attack you. Psalm 23, same author, right? Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, valley, low, it's scary, it's dangerous. So David is saying, I'm in a valley, like spiritually, emotionally, but also physically, presumably, and, and so I need you to lead me and bring me to a, an elevated place, a rock that is higher than I, a, a place of safety and security and, and refuge. That's the first half of the first couplet, right? That's the prayer in the first kind of couplet here is, listen to me, hear me, because I'm in a place of distress, so please save me, bring me out of this place of distress and into a place of safety and security and refuge. And then the recognition that kind of uh, dovetails onto it is, God, you have been my refuge, and you have been a strong tower against the enemy. A tower is tall, it's high, it's elevated, so lead me to an elevated place where I can take refuge Oh, by the way, you have been my refuge and you are this elevated place of protection and safety and, and security. So David is praying, right? God, I am praying that you would do the exact thing that you have a proven track record of having done my entire life up until now. I'm not asking you to do anything that's new or, or novel or, or out of the blue. I'm asking you to, to act uh, in a way that is in line with your character and with what you have done for me up until up until now, and I think that 's uh, a characteristic of godly prayer is that 
It's comprised of real requests, bold requests, requests that border on presumptuous that you would even dare to ask that of, of God, but that are also born out of, kind of forged in, um, a true and right understanding of who God is and an acknowledgement of and a, a gratefulness for what God has done in the past, right? Godly prayer is not void of requests. I need this. Please give me this. Please help me with this. But it's not comprised entirely of those requests. It's, it's comprised of requests of what we need from God, what we're asking from God, but then undergirds them in and kind of surrounds them with uh, an intentional acknowledgement of who God is and what he has done. I mean, the think of the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, there are lots of requests in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Um, deliver us from evil. Right? Lots of requests. But those requests are kind of situated in and kind of punctuated by and grounded in acknowledging who God is. Our Father who is in heaven. Right? He's exalted. Hallowed be your name. Your name is great and glorious. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom is great and great. So, so I acknowledge and recognize who God is, and out of that acknowledgement comes uh, requests for what I need God to do uh, for me. Right? There's a acrostic that Christians will use to guide their prayer. We teach it to the, the kids. Um, acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, right? Worshiping God for who he is, confessing our sin and how we've sinned against God, uh, thanking God for how he's provided for us. That's all, uh, you know, that's all verse 3, right? And then supplication is the requests. That's verses 1 through 2. I think that's a, a good and, and viable way to kind of think about and structure uh, your, your prayer time. And so we've got this first uh, couplet here, right? Hear me, listen to me. Save me from this place of distress that I'm in. Bring me to a place of refuge and safety. And then this recognition, God, you have and you do and you are uh, my place of safety and refuge. You have, you have always done for me the very thing that I am praying that you would do for me now. We go to verse 4, which is the second uh, couplet, the second uh, prayer and recognition. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Tent of the Lord is probably a reference to uh, the tabernacle. The temple had not yet been built uh, when David was king of Israel. They were still worshiping God in the tabernacle, which was this a big tent, a big circus tent basically, that they uh, you know, built when they were wandering in the wilderness after they left Egypt. And they used it to worship God in the wilderness. And then when they settled in the promised land, they continued to use that tabernacle until King Solomon, after David, built the, the permanent temple structure. And so that's probably a reference to the, the tabernacle. It says, uh, let me dwell in your tabernacle. Let me dwell in your tent. Uh, let me take refuge under the shelter of your uh, wings, which is language that we see uh, quite a bit throughout the, the Bible. Uh, taking refuge in or hiding in the shadow of or the shelter of God's wings, which it's still language that we use today, right? If you, you know, new new colleague at work and you say, I'm going to take you under my wing, it means you're going to look out for them, give them intentional 
special attention or care or teaching or guidance. Kind of comes from the idea of a mother bird with her wings spread over her baby uh, you know, chicks so that they'll be safe and protected from harm or danger. That's kind of the, the picture, the, the analogy that, that uh, David is drawing on here. We see this language mentioned in other Psalms. Psalms 36, 57, 63. Psalm 91 makes it, you know, gives more, more detail. It said, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. The Lord will be his refuge and his fortress. Similar language we see here. The Lord will cover him with his feathers and give him refuge under his wings. Jesus, when he looks at the city of Jerusalem in Luke 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The mother bird protecting her baby birds with her uh, wings. It's worth mentioning, just because uh, some liberal theologians will take uh, these verses and kind of do, do violence to them and, and kind of end up saying, well, because of verses like this, we should assume that uh, God is a female or that we should refer to God as our mother. Um, so it's just worth mentioning that God's not a female. Um, God's not a male either, for that matter. Um, God's neither male nor female. He's spirit. And so uh, men were created in the image of God and uh, everything uh, good about godly masculinity comes from who God is. Women were also created in God's image. And everything good about godly femininity also comes from who God is. But God himself is neither male nor female. He is spirit. But God, over and over and over again, refers to himself as our father and not our, not our mother. And he uses masculine pronouns to refer to himself. Jesus is God the Son masculine uh, language. He, he came into this world, uh, incarnated as a human being, as a male, not as a, a female. And so all of that, none of that means that God is a male, because maleness is a characteristic of human beings, and God is not a human being. But the reality is that God chose to describe himself using male pronouns and using the name Father. So I think we would do well to follow God's lead and refer to God as our Father, and using male pronouns to refer to, to God. I would, pro- I would say that using female pronouns or the word mother to refer to God is at best unwise and at worst false doctrine. So, so I, w- I, would, I would avoid it. But um, God says, right, uh, or David say, he refers to God, right, uh, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And then there's this weird word, uh, selah, which, uh, which means uh, pause or like take a, take a break. It means, you know, think back and reflect on what you just heard. Take a minute and let it sink in. Let it process before you, before you, you move on. Which is important to do. Because when we consider verse 4 over and against verses 1 to 2, we can kind of see, uh, we can kind of, some things kind of stand out. Right? Both of them are, uh, verse 4 is very similar to verses 1 to 2 in that they're both asking God um, for, for something, right? Uh, verses 1 to 2 is, is, you know, bring me, uh, you know, yeah, keep me safe, bring me into a place of security. Verse 4 is kind of specifying that 
that particular place of security that I want you to bring me into, God, is in your presence. It's with you. It's in your tent. It's under the shelter of your wings. So, one to two, general, bring me to a place of safety. Verse four, that place of safety is in your presence, with you, enjoying your nearness and your fullness. And here's why that's important for our prayer life. Because of all of the things that we pray for, which we should pray for, the one thing that we need most and the one thing that we should ultimately desire for God to give us is the gift of himself. Right? David says, bring me to a place of safety, but the, the real prayer that's lurking beneath that prayer is bring me into your presence. Right? What, what, I, what I said was that I want and need safety and security and to be defended from my enemies, but what I really need is to be with God, to enjoy God, to have my sins forgiven and to be reconciled to God and to experience his nearness and his presence. Right? If you think about your prayer life, when you think about the things that you pray for the most, spouse, your marriage, your kids, that you could be a godly parent, pray for your career, that the Lord would provide for your family, you know, pray for your church, church members, friends, family members, evangelistic opportunities to share the gospel. Right? All the things that we could pray for, that it's good and right and appropriate to pray for, the one thing that we need more than any of those things, and maybe the one thing that actually is at the heart of the, the, the furnace that's driving each of those things is God himself, that we need his presence and we need his nearness and we need to be restored into a right relationship with him. As wonderful as marriage is, as wonderful as my spouse is, what I need even more than marriage is God. I need to have my sins forgiven. I need to be reconciled to God and enjoy his presence, right? That's kind of the unspoken prayer that lurks beneath every godly prayer that we might pray, is that what we really need is God. So keep me safe, give me security, protection from my enemies, but what I really what I really mean when I say that is give me more of yourself and more of your presence. Which is why, again, why David, this same psalmist in Psalm 16, says, Lord, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's all of these things that I'm praying for that I think are going to bring me joy, but I also recognize that the fullest joy that I could ever have is found in Christ and not in anything else. All of these things that I'm praying for that I think will bring me pleasure, but I recognize that, that pleasure in the fullest sense is found in Christ and, and not in anything else. One, uh, one theologian puts it this way. He says, um, uh, God, let's see, he says, God will always answer your prayers 
100% of the time, God will answer your prayers, and he will always answer it in one of two ways. He will either uh, give you exactly what you ask for, in the exact way that you asked for it, in the exact timeline that you asked for it. Either God will do that, or God will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. He'll either give you what you asked for, or he'll give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. And so God knows that the one thing that we need, God knows that, that true refuge, safety, security, joy, pleasure, satisfaction is not found in material possessions or, or anything else. It's found in knowing him and experiencing his uh, presence. And so God knows that's what we need. And that's what God gives us because he knows that that's what we would pray for if we knew everything that he, that he knows. So, prayer one, hear me, listen to me, deliver me, bring me to a place of safety. Recognition number one, you have been my refuge, you have kept me safe. Prayer number two, bring me into your presence, right? Under your safe and loving protection. And then recognition number two that goes right with it. For you, O God, have heard my vows and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. So up until now, God has heard, God has answered what I prayed for in verse one. Hear me, listen to me. God has always done that, right? And, and, then, and then God has given me the heritage of those who fear his name. The heritage or the inheritance that he's referring to there would be the blessings of and the benefits of being in a covenantal relationship with God. Life with God in his presence, in the land that he has promised to bring his people into under the sovereign and righteous rule of God as king. So David says, you have given that to me, right? Right? Hear me, keep me safe, you have kept me safe. Bring me into your presence, you have brought me into your presence, is essentially what God is saying in verses 1 through 5. Then verses uh, 6 and 7, uh, he kind of changes it up a little bit. Uh, Prolong the life of the king, may his years endure to all generations, may he be enthroned before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Which is a little bit weird that David is praying for the king of Israel because David is the king of Israel. So it's kind of a, kind of a conflict of interest there. But um, he's, uh, he's praying for the king of Israel. Give him a long life, security, prosperity, love, steadfastness, kindness, faithfulness. Right? I want you to bless the king of Israel, who just happens to be David. So one, there's probably a few things that are going on with verses 6 and 7. Uh, one is that literally David is just praying for uh, himself. <coughs> He's been praying for himself up until now, that, that God would intervene and keep him safe and give him prosperity. And so he, he certainly could be, I think is, continuing to pray for him himself. I am not a prosperity preacher. I'm not uh, a health and wealth uh, prosperity. That's a different team that I'm not on. But I think it's totally acceptable to pray a prayer like this to God. God, I pray that you would give me 
a long life. Give me an abundant life where I flourish and enjoy your grace and your provision. I think that's totally appropriate to pray. An abundant life from God doesn't always mean financially a lot of money. More often than not, I think it doesn't. Theoretically, it could. But I think it's totally appropriate to pray for a long life, to pray for an abundant life, to pray for God to be gracious to you in that uh, way. So I think that's maybe one thing that that David is saying here in verses 6 through 7. But uh, what an, another thing that I think he's saying or implying with these two verses is he's praying for the, the, the office of the king of Israel and whoever is going to occupy it for generations to come. So he's praying not just for himself, but for all of his descendants that are going to reign from the throne. He's praying for his son, Solomon. He's praying for his grandson, praying for his great-grandson. He's praying that they would be good and godly kings. He's praying that God would bless them and help them to thrive uh, and help them to be good, godly shepherds over. He, David's praying for his family legacy and for the line of kings that are going to come forth from him for generations to, to come. So I think that's also, I think David's praying for himself. I think he's praying for his family legacy and his, his children and their descendants. But what I think David is also praying for um, is the right the, the final true king of Israel, what, what theologians call the Davidic king, uh, the, the Messiah. So, another piece of candy. Who, what, who here, what kids uh, know what the Davidic covenant is? Or can, can tell me or explain to me what the Davidic covenant is? Anyone want to give it a shot? Davidic covenant. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, have, to, we'll have to find another question for you guys to, to score some candy later. The Davidic covenant uh, is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in it, David, this king right here, uh, he is in the palace and he's feeling convicted. He's saying, I live in this beautiful, ornate palace that I've built. And, God, and we're still worshiping God, not in a temple, but in the ta- in a tent, in a circus tent, right? That's where we go to church and worship God is in, in a thing called the tabernacle. And so I am feeling convicted by that. I want to build God a house. And 2 Samuel 7, God responds back to David and he says, you're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house. And by that, God means uh, when your days are fulfilled and when you die and lie with your fathers, I, God, am going to raise up from your David's, from your offspring, a future king, and I'm going to establish his kingdom, and he will sit on the throne of David forever. That's the Davidic covenant. That's God's promise to David about a future king, a Davidic king that is going to come and rule over God's people. And so when, God, when David prays for the king of Israel, but not just, not just any king, but specifically a king whose uh, years are going to endure to all generations and who is going to be enthroned forever before God, he is praying tangentially or indirectly, he's praying for the Messiah, the true and final king. He's praying for myself, the current king. He's praying for my, my children, the future kings. And he's praying for the Messiah, the true and final forever king, Jesus Christ. And so verses 6 and 7 are effectively David praying, uh, God, 
I pray for the future rule and reign of the Messiah. I pray that his kingdom would come. I pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that he would reign from the throne forever and ever. I pray that his reign would be righteous and wonderful and a blessing to all people in his kingdom. I pray for the glorious, eternal, eschatological kingdom of of God. So there's a lot of theology packed into just a very, very small amount of real estate there in verses 6 and 7. And there's, there's, a, um, there's a lot of application that we can draw out of it as, as well, right? Um, so how can we apply verses 6 through 7? He's praying for the king of Israel. So one, uh, pray for people in authority, right? We're explicitly commanded in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, make prayers and petitions and intercessions for all people, especially for those who are in authority, so that you might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, because this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So Christians should pray for the president, should pray for government officials, they should pray for um, your bosses, your employers, pastors, uh, parents, Right? Uh, people who are in uh, positions of authority, you should pray for them. Not only for their sake, right? you should pray for them for their sake so that God will bless them and help them to do a good job. But you should pray for them for your sake because if they're in authority over you, you want that authority uh, relationship to be good and, and healthy and not abusive and, and, and toxic. And so pray for those who are in authority. That's, a, that's an application from verses 6 through 7. Another... Like we said, since David is praying for his children, the future kings of of Israel, another application of these two verses would be to pray for your children and pray for their children. And pray Pray for the the legacy that's going to come forth from from you for generations to, to come. If your children are little and don't know the Lord yet, pray that God would give them the gift of repentance and faith. Pray that they will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. If your children are older or grown and they don't know the Lord, or if they've walked away from the faith, pray that God would sovereignly draw them back to himself, that he would use circumstances in their life, even suffering, that he would use circumstances to to soften their hearts and draw them to, to Christ, to trust in him. If your children are believers, pray. thank God for that. And pray that God would keep them and cause them to persevere and encourage their hearts and their souls. Pray that they would, if they're not already, pray that they would commit to a healthy local church that will disciple them and help them to follow Jesus. Pray that, that for generations to come, your family would be a, 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 a force for good and godliness and the gospel in the world, pray that your children and their children would love God and proclaim the gospel, right? And, th- and that God would be made famous through the legacy that your family leaves. That's an application from verses 6 through 7. And another one, uh, inasmuch as this verse is referring to the Davidic king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his eternal kingdom, we should pray for that and pray about that. We should pray uh, about heaven. We should um, 
pray that God's will would be, would be done. We should, we should anticipate the glory of being in the presence of Jesus forever and ever. And we should pray that God would manifest it and bring it here to earth in his perfect timing according to his perfect will. All of that is, is bound up in these two, two verses, I think. Praying for those in authority, praying for your family and its legacy, praying for Jesus and his eternal kingdom to come. So, thus far we've seen two kind of couplets, right? Keep me safe, bring me to a place of safety and security. You have done that for me. That, that place of security that I want to be in is in your presence, with you, enjoying you. You have done that. And then I pray for the, the king of Israel and his uh, kingdom. And then finally, verse 8, uh, David commits to, he resolves to respond to God and his grace in his life. He says, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. So all these things that I've asked from you, grace, safety, intervention, presence, right? The, the, the king, I've, I've asked you for a lot of things, but I am also committing to do something. I'm committing to respond in a certain way. And David's response is one of worship and of faithfulness. So I will respond to the goodness of God, the grace of God, the character of God with, with worship. I will sing praises to your name. Right? I will declare through song and through words how good and great God is. I'll sing about how good God is. You could argue that the whole purpose of the entire Christian life is to observe and behold and see and savor the goodness and the glory of God and then to respond to that goodness that you have just beheld with, with worship and with singing uh, and declaring how great God is, right? The chief end of man is to, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so the essence, the trajectory of the Christian life is to behold God's glory and then to worship God and exalt God because of and for his glory. But David is also careful, right? So I will ever sing, I will worship you and exalt you and talk about, I will, with my words, I will declare how good and great and glorious you are. I will make every effort to make God as famous as I can in all the earth. And, but, I also recognize that worship is not limited to what I say with my mouth, what I sing. It's not less than that, but it is, it is far more than that. True worship, real godly worship is not less than what we say and what we sing, but it is far more. Next week we're going to look at Romans 12. Verses, verses 1 and following, where Paul says, uh, in view of God's mercy, I want you to present your body, present your whole entire self, your whole life, the entirety of who you are, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
So your Christian, your spiritual act of worship is not singing, it's not limited to singing songs here on Sunday morning or singing songs as you drive in your, your car. It's not limited to, uh, you know, music or, or what you say. True worship, when understood rightly and when practiced rightly, is when someone loves God and gives the entirety of who they are to God, mind, heart, body, intellect, emotion, will, life, possessions, money, resources, relationships, everything that I am, everything that I have, I'm giving it to God. Everything that I have is yours. You created me. You gave me everything that I have anyway. You saved me. You died on the cross for my sins to reconcile me to God. So I owe you everything. Everything that I have belongs to God. It's yours. That's what true godly worship is. It is singing about how great God is. It's not less than that, but it's far more. It is, it is giving the entirety of who we are and what we have to God. Performing my vows. Right? Do, doing that faithfully day after day after day. Performing my vows day after day. So day after day, faithfully, every single day until I see Jesus face to face, looking to him, trusting in him, obeying his word, repenting of my sin, dying to self, loving God, loving my neighbor, practicing the spiritual disciplines, reading my Bible, spending time in prayer, committing to a local church, attending, giving, serving, discipling other believers, sharing the gospel with unbelievers every day, every single day for my entire life until I see Jesus face to face. That's what, that's what godly worship is. And David says, that's what I aspire to do. That's what I commit to do. That's what I long to do with my life here in this, in this world. That's how I'm going to respond to the goodness and glory and faithfulness of God. And that's how God is calling us to respond to him. To see the goodness and the glory of God, to see how he answers our prayers, and then to respond to the glory of God by worshiping him with what we say, with what we sing, but also with our lives and how we live for God and for his glory, right? We, we pray that God would hear us and listen to us and bring us to a place of safety. We acknowledge that God has been our refuge and kept us safe. We pray that God would give us the gift of his presence, the best and most glorious thing that there is. We acknowledge that he has done that and that we currently enjoy the benefits of being in relationship with God. We pray for our leaders, our family, the eternal kingdom of Christ, and then we respond by worshiping Jesus with all that we are for all of our lives, for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven to save us from our sin, to satisfy us from the wrath of God and to reconcile us to him forever. We thank you for the good news of Jesus, our great God and Savior. Lord, we pray that you would hear us We pray that you would 
draw near to us, and we pray that you would help us to respond by worshiping you and exalting your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.